Paul unpack or begin to unpack over these next few weeks his story. His story of God's grace at work in his life, uh, even before he was converted to Jesus and to Christianity. Even before God was at work in his life. And so we're going to see that, and we're going to see Paul's emphasis on grace. And so uh, as we, as we uh, dive into the word together this morning, let me pray. And then we're going we're gonna to open up to the book of Galatians. Let me pray. Father, thanks for your grace to us. Thank you that uh, as we've prayed and sung already many times, Lord, it's not about us. It's all Jesus about you and your goodness. Holy Spirit, would you uh, use me this morning, teach me and teach through me about your grace and about your goodness? Uh, might we leave uh, encouraged, um, both uh, freed from, from pride in our own good works and uh, guilt in our sin, but instead those, Jesus, who've trusted you, might we leave with joy and with courage to live a life pleasing to you. Let my words be clear today, Lord, I pray. And we pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would speak lies to us and uh, cause us not to believe the gospel, but to trust in ourselves and in religion and in good works. So teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're in the book of Galatians. Last week was really a lot of intro and kind of the intro to the letter. And we saw uh, that Paul, when he takes off in this letter to the churches of Galatia, he has a tone of anger. He, he's not a happy camper. If you compare it with every other letter that Paul wrote, in every other letter, uh, he says something good about the church, something gracious as he begins writing to them. But in Galatians, he's just like, I am astonished that you would turn your back on the gospel of God's grace. He, he's, he's furious in the way that he writes and in the tone, and we talked about that last week. And his anger comes from the fact that there was a, that these, these people who were parts of churches that Paul had planted had turned from uh, trusting in Jesus and his grace alone for their salvation to believing that somehow now to please God, they had to do good works. And there was a group of, of agitators, of Christians who, or excuse me, of, of oh, maybe Jewish Christians who had showed up from Jerusalem, Judaizers, who began uh, imposing rules and regulations on the people in the churches of Galatia. They said, sure, you're saved by grace alone, but it's grace, and then it's, you still have to do, 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 do all this stuff. You have to obey Jewish ritual. You have to get circumcised. It was Jesus plus, and they were adding all of these things on. And Today we really get into the heart of the letter where Paul is going to address some of these things. And you could break down Galatians basically into three parts. And you have this on your notes in your bulletin this morning. The first section is really at chapter 1, verse 10, where we start today through uh, the end of chapter 2, where Paul is going to defend his authority as an apostle. Now the reason he does this is because other people had showed up from Jerusalem told the people in the Galatian churches that, uh, yeah, Paul's preaching this, but he doesn't quite have the whole story. You also need to do this, this, this. So, so Paul is defending his authority as an apostle, capital A, so that uh, they would understand that this isn't Paul's idea. This isn't a man-made thing. This is from God, and his authority comes from Jesus Christ himself. So Paul's going to defend his authority here over the next couple of weeks, telling his story. In other words, the whole, the whole issue is, why should they listen to Paul instead of these other guys who showed up? That's really what's at stake. So Paul's going to defend his authority as an apostle. 
Next, he's going to, uh, in chapters three and four, he's going to defend the gospel. He's going to get into the question, the theological argument of uh, what does it mean to be justified before God? How, How are we saved? How does God bring us into relationship with him? And how does he keep us there? And then the last couple chapters of Galatians are all application, kind of how do I live then to please God? So that's where we're going to be going over the next 11, 12 weeks. But today we're in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 10, and I'm just going to read through this together with you, and then we'll begin to unpack it. But this is the beginning of Paul really uh, exerting his authority as an apostle, saying, uh, here's why I have authority, here's why you ought to listen to me and not these other people who have come in. He starts in verse 10, he says, uh, and again, this is all after saying he was astonished that they had turned from the gospel of grace to another gospel as if there was one. He says, "For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor, nor was I taught it, meaning by men. But, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. That's Peter. When I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, or but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it, and they said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy And they glorified God because of me. Amen. Well, Paul begins to give his testimony. Here we see him recounting his conversion to Christianity and his early experience. And this isn't a really rare thing at all for Paul. He does this often in his letters. He he tells his story. He gives his experience. You see it in the book of Acts. And here Paul's sharing it not just Uh, for general, you know, to inspire people or to point people to himself, he's using it to say, listen, the authority with which I tell you these things about the gospel doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus. It's not man-made. It's not man-made. It's from God. The the God of grace saves sinners like Paul. He, He reveals his risen son both to the proud and the evil, the religious and the irreligious. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Some of us are really religious. We like to follow all the rules. Some of us are really irreligious. We don't have time for anything as it relates to spirituality or church. And the gospel saves us from both of those things. 
See, uh, God is even at work, we're going to see, in people, in you, in Paul, before he saves Paul and before he saves you. He's already at work in your life. And he doesn't just work in order to save you, but he works in order to keep you and to equip you for service later after you've come to know Jesus. Grace continues to work in and through Paul. See, Paul begins by telling his testimony. Look at, look at verse 16. First we read that Paul, that God, excuse me, was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God chose to save Paul so that through Paul, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people would come to know, people like you and me would come to know Jesus Christ and have saving faith in him. God is at work through Paul. And, and it's, it's, it's really, in Paul then we see the difference between somebody who's just a, a religious Christian or a moral Christian and somebody who's truly a Christian. That after the gospel uh, comes into our life and changes us, we can't help but tell people about it. Paul, in verse 16, he said, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. When you know the truth of the gospel, friends, when it, when it really affects your life, you can't help but, but think about it. You can't help but live a life that you want to please God. You can't help but when you get the opportunity to open your mouth and, and give testimony to God's grace. And that's what Paul does. And what we're going to see here in Paul's story as he walks through is Paul basically says, uh, I was saved on my way to Damascus. And then after I was saved, uh, I went off into Arabia for a while. I was there for three years before I came back to Damascus and never came to Jerusalem. So I didn't learn this from the apostles in Jerusalem. It was revealed to me independently of them. Do you know the story of Paul? Paul, his original name was Saul. And he was an incredibly zealous, zealous Jewish man. He followed all the rules. He kept the law meticulously. And in fact, in the, the end of chapter 7 of Acts, beginning of chapter 8, uh, in chapter 7, a guy by the name of Stephen, who's a leader in the church, is stoned uh, to death by some of the Jewish uh, people who, who didn't accept Jesus as Savior. And it says, kind of a little footnote at the end, they handed all of their coats to this guy, this young boy named Saul, this young man named Saul. And in the, I think the first verse of chapter eight, it says, he stood by and he approved of the execution. Paul held all their coats while they stoned Stephen to death. And then you fast forward into chapter nine and we find Paul is, has been and is persecuting followers of the way of Christianity. He was so zealous for the Jewish law and for Jewish tradition and the Jewish faith that, uh, and, he, and he didn't believe anything about Jesus truly being the Messiah. So he, he went after Christians. He persecuted them. He, he taunted them. He, he, he murdered them. I said it last week, I've said it before. I mean, he was like, um, uh, like, like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and he was a terrorist going after Christians. Paul truly was a terrorist. And in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus to continue his work of dissuading people from believing in Jesus. And on his way, uh, something incredible happens. Jesus appears to him. He said, it was, a, it was bright, I was blinded, he fell down onto the ground, 
And those who were around him even knew something was going on and heard. And, and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And in that moment, uh, Saul's life was changed. He was blind. He went into Damascus, uh, met a man by the name of Ananias who prayed for him. Something like scales fell from his eyes. And Saul's life was never the same. It says that immediately he began actually teaching in the synagogues about the gospel. He couldn't contain it. That's what it said in verse 16 here, right? He was, uh, God was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him. And then what Paul does, you would think, you know, uh, this guy who's a new Christian, he probably went back to Jerusalem to be trained and understand uh, Christianity, right? No. He goes on a kind of a little spiritual retreat to Arabia, which would be modern-day Jordan, likely. And he's there for a number of years, and then he goes back to Damascus, and then he goes to Jerusalem three years later. And when he gets there, he meets with, uh, he tells us, he went to Jerusalem and he, he, to visit Cephas, to visit Peter, and he stayed with Peter for 15 days. But he didn't see any of the other disciples, any of the other apostles except for Jesus' little brother James. That was the only other one he saw. And then he took off and he started going north through Syria and Sicilia and around to Tarsus, his hometown. And his point in all of this, as he's telling this to the believers in the churches of Galatia, he's like, listen, these Judaizers are coming in and they're telling you, Paul's gospel isn't complete. Like you have to do all this stuff too. You're saved by grace, but then you have to follow all the rules. It's Jesus plus. That's what pleases God. That's what saves you. And Paul's like, listen, they're going to come in and tell you that they have more authority than me. I'm telling you, like the original apostles, I'm an apostle, capital A. I didn't receive this from man. It was revealed to me by Jesus Christ. I didn't spend time in Jerusalem and like I didn't hear something that they heard and that they're now telling you. It was taught to me by Jesus himself. My authority is greater than their authority. And furthermore, he's going to go on, he's going to say, and the people, uh, those apostles, Peter and James and others, they affirmed everything that I had been taught. They affirmed everything I had learned from the Lord Jesus. Yeah, that's the gospel. That's the truth. We're going to see that throughout the book of Galatians. So Paul's exerting his authority here so that they would believe him. Now, with that in mind, I want to look today from this passage at God's grace. Because Paul's testimony is, is all about God's grace. Look at verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What's he talking about here? I, I believe he's talking about pleasing man. In other words, living up to all the man-made rules and expectations that he used to live up to and live by. I'm not someone who's pleasing man anymore. I'm pleasing Christ. See, Paul is really, he's giving a statement of identity that grace, that grace makes us who we are. Grace uh, is God's way of, of giving us an identity. Grace determines who we are. That's your first fill-in this morning. 
who you are. Grace in who we are. That's what we see first in Paul's life. He, he used to live a life seeking the approval of man. And, and really what's happening here with Paul is, and this is religion, by the way, in general. It seeks to achieve an identity. It seeks to achieve God's favor. You've heard me probably teach on this before, but uh, it's kind of a hobby horse of mine. And I think it's at the root of really uh, most of our issues in following Christ and dealing with sin and uh, dealing with a lot of different issues in our life. And that's this issue of identity. There's two things in your life. You have an identity and you have activity. Theologically, this is referred to as your ontology. So if you want to sound smart, you can say it that way. And your economy. Your ontology, your identity, is who you are. It's who I am. Your activity, your economy, is what you do. What I do. Now, here's the big question. And this, I think, is really at the heart of what, what Paul is writing about in verse 10. That he says, I used to please man, but now I please Christ. It's this whole issue of identity. And here, here's the question that arises out of this. Is which one precedes the other? Does your activity determine your identity? Does, does what I do determine who I am? Or is it the other way around that my identity determines my activity? That who I am determines what I do? Do you see the difference? One of these things is a lie. And one of these things is truth. One of these things is religion, and the other is gospel. Friends, religion would tell you uh, that the arrow moves uh, from right to left, from activity to identity. That if you're going to be pleasing to God, you better get your life in order. You better do all the right things, jump through all the right hoops, sing the right songs, behave the right way, and then finally, somehow, you'll be pleasing to God. Friends, that's religion. That's religion. And it's a lie. You know how I can tell you it's a lie? It's, in fact, it's, it's maybe Satan's biggest lie. If you would look back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27... Uh, God says that uh, um, he, he creates man and woman, and it says that he creates them in his image. He creates us in his image, in his likeness. In other words, when God created Adam and Eve in the very beginning, we were like God in some way. They were like God. And then if you fast forward to chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, the enemy comes along, and Satan's desire is always to reverse whatever God has put in order. And so he goes up the chain of command backwards. He starts with Eve, and then he goes to Adam, the reverse of God's created order. And, and the other thing he reverses is this whole idea of their identity, because God said, you're made in my image, and now he said, now go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it, uh, rule over it, represent me in it, right? Here's who you are, now go live like me in the world. Satan comes along and he says, now, did, did God say you couldn't eat from any tree? That's the opposite of what he said. He said, no, God said we couldn't eat from one tree. Okay, well, then uh, he said, uh, if you eat from any tree, you'd die, right? And he was like, no, no, no. He said, if we, if we eat from one tree, we would die. 
Okay, so that didn't work. So let, let's, he keeps going, trying to reverse it. He goes, well, okay, well, if you would, you, you know, if you eat from that tree, you're not going to die. Really what's happening is God is pretty insecure. And he's afraid that if you eat from that tree, you're going to become like him. And you're going to know things that he knows. Did, did you see the lie? He said, if you do this, you'll become like God. If you eat from the tree, you'll be like him. What did God actually say to Adam and Eve? What did he say in Genesis 1, 26, 27? He said, you are like me, now go do this. Satan reverses it. He says, do this so you can be like God. The lie of religion, friends, is that if you do enough good things, if you get it right enough, if you jump through enough hoops, somehow eventually you're going to be pleasing to God. The thing it doesn't account for, though, is that God is perfectly holy. And so the only way you could ever be perfectly pleasing to him is if you yourself are perfectly holy. So the first time you mess up, which was probably when you were about eight months old, if not younger, you're done. And in fact, it is younger than that because we're born with original sin. That image in us is broken because of Adam and Eve's sin and because of our own sin. The lie is do this, do this, do this, and you'll be like God. And that's, that's the lie that the Judaizers were telling the Galatians. No, no, no. You, you don't just receive this identity from Jesus. You, see, you have to get circumcised. And then you have to follow all the rituals and all the rules. And then you have to do this and do this and do this. And then, then you'll be pleasing to him. And sometimes in churches we can do this. We can say, oh, great, I'm glad you're here now. Uh, and you got baptized, good. Now uh, you need to uh, uh, do this. You need to give this much money. You need to dress this certain way. You need to quit talking like this. You need to blah, 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 for you to really be accepted and loved by us and, and by God. Now, should you give and do good things? Yeah. But that doesn't precede your acceptance. Your identity precedes your good works. That's the gospel. The gospel, friends, is this. You can never do enough. You will work yourself to death and never come close to being right with God. And so what Jesus does is he comes and he lives the perfect life that you and I could never hope to live, but that we were created and commanded to live. And then uh, he pays the penalty for the sin that he never committed that we committed. He, he pays the penalty of death on the cross, and in doing so, he exchanges his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. He takes all of our filth and dies for it. And in giving us his righteousness, you know what he gives us? An identity and freedom and grace. And so now you are new. You're a saint you don't become a saint by having enough votes of all the cardinals and everybody else. You, you become a saint by trusting Jesus Christ. And now because you're a saint, you know what Jesus says, what the Lord says? He says, now go live like it. All of these good works then come out of my identity. And I can do them with freedom because I know my identity is secure. I did nothing to achieve it so I can do nothing to lose it. I simply received it. In fact, uh, look at verse 15 of what Paul writes here in Galatians. He says, 
But when he who had set me apart, when did he set, set Paul apart? What's it say? Say it again. Before he was born. So how many good works did Paul do before he was born to achieve God's favor in his life? Zero. That's impossible. Paul's saying it's all grace, friends. His identity is received totally by God's grace. That's the gospel. Have you been working hard to somehow jump through all the right hoops and be right with God? You need to know there's freedom from that. And that freedom comes from Jesus giving you an identity and then you living it out. So we see God's grace in who we are. We also see God's grace um, in the past as we look back. We see God's grace in the past as we look back. Um, look at Paul. He talks about all of these things that had happened. He says in, uh, uh, let's see, he says for... For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel, verse 11, that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This is really, uh, this is astonishing because Paul's been resisting God's grace and doing so much wrong to the point of, of murdering Christians and violently going after them that, that now suddenly God in his grace still chooses him to be an apostle. If anybody had screwed up, it was Paul. Big time. He calls himself later to Timothy the chief of sinners. But this is a major theme in the Bible. Back in Genesis, uh, Joseph told his brothers that when they sold him into slavery, that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. So God was at work beforehand, wasn't he? Or uh, uh, th there's other, other examples all throughout Scripture, too, um, where opposition to God is seen in the end as having done nothing but further the plan of God. And in Paul's life, God was at work even while he was persecuting Christians. Because it's amazing, the testimony, the faithful testimony of those he persecuted didn't change him. But the thing that seemed to change him was Jesus getting a hold of his heart, and now he's brand new. But God was at work the whole time. Because God gave him an incredible education under a Jewish rabbi. He gave him an incredible understanding of the Old Testament and of the law. And what God's plan to do then is to take all of that and to reveal to Paul, have Paul reveal it to others that, listen, all of that's fulfilled by Jesus and he gives you an identity. Now go live it and live in grace and in peace. This is a common theme in life too. C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he wrote about a school teacher named Kirkpatrick that he had, and he called him the Great Knock. And this guy, the Great Knock, he was a furious debater, just an intense debater, and he was an atheist. 
And so he was training Lewis how to uh, argue like he did and argue for that atheistic viewpoint. Little did he know, though, that uh, Lewis would later come to faith in Jesus and everything that he had been teaching him of how to argue against the Christian faith would be used to argue in some of the most powerful ways in history for the Christian faith. God was at work before C.S. Lewis was ever converted. He was at work before Paul was. He was at work before you were. David Jeremiah has a quote that I think is, is really good or an analogy he uses um, about uh, understanding God's will and his plan and how you see it in your life, that his grace is at work even in the past. I have in my hands, this is a Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible, you would think you read it like this, like we do, right? This is actually the back of the book. This is the front. So uh, for us English-speaking people, we read it backwards. And there's, there's my name in the book, and then uh, in case people borrow it, there's the title page, and you go through it this way, from left to right, to read the Hebrew text. David Jeremiah had a, had a good analogy where he said, you know how you understand God's will? You read it like the Hebrew Bible. You read it from the backwards forwards. And as you look back, or really from, I said that kind of goofy, didn't I? You read it backwards. You read it from the present to the past. And as you look back, that's how you see God at work and his will. It's, I've used that analogy. It's, you see God's will and his plan and his grace a lot of times in the rearview mirror, not the windshield. You see it as you look back. I wonder, maybe you think about that. How have you seen God's grace in your life in the past? Long before you were ever searching for Jesus, what was he doing to search for you? Is it like Paul before, he, he called Paul before he was even born. I believe that's the, the same thing for you and I. He knew you and he loved you. Deuteronomy, Moses tells God's people, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest. He chose you and picked you because he loved you. It's all about his love for you and his grace. And he's been working in the past to draw you to him. So we see God's grace in the past, but God's grace is also a present work. It's at work in the present. See, grace doesn't finish its work in the past, bringing us up to the point of salvation. It continues its work in the present. Um, as we read, uh, that God was pleased to reveal his son in Paul so that he might preach. Uh, God's work it was at work in the present in Paul's life to the point that uh, he left and went to Arabia and he learned and God continued to teach him and shape him and grow him. And he comes back to Damascus and then he, he takes off in Acts chapter 9 verse 26 and he goes back to Jerusalem. And it, it's confirmed to him uh, the things that God had taught him. How's God at work in the present in your life shaping you to become more like Jesus? Showing grace to you. Reminding you that it's not about you. See, it's, it's past, it's present, but then uh, finally it's, it's future. That uh, God's grace, God's grace does this. It's, it's at work in the present, but God's grace is how God changes us as well as we move ahead. So th th these two points I'm kind of combining together, but God's grace is at work in the, in the future as we move ahead. He changes us. 
And what the gospel does, like it did for Paul, it removes a man-pleasing spirit, this drive to achieve and, uh, the approval of men. And it replaces it with an opposite spirit, not needing to win or seek human approval for what you do. In other words, the gospel produces a confident and fearless followers of Jesus. Paul says he couldn't be a servant of Christ if he was a people pleaser. Now, I'll be honest, that's a, that's a piercing word to me because I contend way too often to try to please people. I delay bringing correction to people sometimes because I'm scared of what they think of me. I, I do things in a certain way sometimes because not that I want to please God, but that I want to please people. Do you struggle with that? That's a challenge for me. And so when I read that, that Paul says, I, I couldn't be a servant of Christ if, if I were still a people pleaser. Now that's not to say that as soon as you become a Christian, you quit sinning because we don't, do we? We're a saint, our identity's new, but we're learning to live it out. So uh, when the Bible talks of the sin of pleasing men, uh, it does so in a number of different ways. And it's, it's something that, that hopefully is a work in progress in our lives. Uh, Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. And this fear of people then is the opposite of the fear of God. Think about it. If the, the fear of God, what does that mean? What's it mean to fear God? It means not necessarily just to be frightened by him, but to be filled with awe and wonder at who he is, right? It, to, to fear God is this great sense of attraction to his greatness, Therefore, the fear of man, you know what it does? It's not just afraid of what people think. If the fear of God actually causes us to worship God, the fear of man causes us to worship people and their opinion. And it puts them on this pedestal that, oh, if I could just please them, as opposed to, oh, if I could just please God. And it elevates them to a place of importance. We hold them in awe. We crave their approval. We fear their disapproval where your desire for their blessing, it amounts to adoration and worship of them. And it means you'll be devastated at the loss of their approval. Because it'd be like you got criticized or condemned by God himself if that person quit approving of you or those people. So how does the gospel destroy this? How does the gospel destroy it? Well, what it does is it frees us from it. It's the sweetness of freedom. And see, because that fear of man, ultimately what it is, is it's doing all these things to be made right in someone else's eyes. But the gospel's the opposite. You've been made right by Jesus. Now go live like it. You might think of it like this. See, when, when God is pleased with us, we can live in a way that pleases God. When we know our identity, we know that God is pleased with who we are in Jesus Christ. It frees us to live a life in freedom to please him and not be in bondage to pleasing others. Think of it like this. Think of, uh, I'll, just, I'll just show you a picture here from me when I was little. My dad used to coach our, my baseball team probably seven or eight years at least while I was growing up. He was my coach up through eighth grade. And then uh, as I got into high school, he moved down. And all of my brothers, we, 
we figured out he coached for like, it was almost 20 years of coaching Little League Baseball. Every year, he's, he was always my coach. And sometimes he was a couple of ours coaches. So he was running around all over coaching little boys, playing baseball. And one thing that I knew about my dad is that he loved me. He made that so clear. Over and over and over, I heard him tell me that. I had no fear that no matter what I did, he would still love me. I knew sometimes he might be disappointed in me. He might be frustrated with me. But I never feared that he didn't love me. And so because I never feared that, um, in trying to please him, wasn't trying to earn his favor or earn his love. It was because I knew I was loved and because I loved him. Do you see the difference? So uh, imagine a little boy on a little league baseball team whose father is their coach. A father who loves them and cares for them. As, as he sits in the dugout, he loves his son completely. So as that boy goes to the plate to bat, if he strikes out, it's okay. Now when he gets up to the plate, he wants to hit a home run. I wanted to hit a home run every time. I wanted to get on base. I didn't want to strike out. And I wanted to do it to please my dad. But you know what? It was because I knew that I was loved, not because I was trying to earn his favor somehow. Do you see the difference? Now imagine the little boy that goes to the plate who's totally unsure of if their dad really loves them or cares for them. And maybe if I hit a home run, he'll love me. Oh, that didn't do it. Maybe if I hit another one, that didn't do it either. Uh, maybe a grand slam. What if I pitch a shutout? What if I turn a double play? Will he love me then? It, it's never enough, is it? It's never enough. And God's grace changes us because what it says is, I've given you an identity. You're mine. You're saved. You are loved. That's why we say it every week. Now go live a life pleasing to me. And when you fail, guess what never changes? My love for you. Because it's, it wasn't achieved by you and it can't be lost by you. You are loved. Now go live from that identity. That's grace, friends. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul's trying to communicate to the Galatian churches. And that's why he's so intense about, listen, this authority that I have isn't from man. It isn't made up. This, this is the gospel. This is the truth. It was given to me. It was revealed to me by Jesus Christ himself. You can't do anything to earn God's love. It's freely given. It's all grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. Lord, thanks for your grace at work uh, in giving us an identity, determining who we are. Thank you for your grace in uh, the past, just like it was at work in the past in Paul's life before he was ever converted. It was at work in my life. It was in work in all of our lives before we ever trusted you. Thank you for your grace at work in the present, freeing us from the bondage of sin and the bondage of pleasing people or seeking the approval of others, of religion or of being irreligious. 
Thank you, too, that, the, that your grace continues to change us as we move forward then, that we can live lives uh, pleasing to you with joy and with freedom, knowing that your love uh, and your uh, grace toward us never changes. We didn't earn it, so we can't lose it. Father, I pray for those who've never trusted you. If, if you hear my voice today and you've never trusted in God's grace, but you've been uh, trying to do it all your, on your own, you've been religious, or are you just like, you know what, I don't care, it doesn't make sense, you've been irreligious. Listen, I'm telling you, you need Jesus' grace. You can never do it on your own. And if you would simply pray to him, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of saving. I need your grace. Jesus, be my savior. It's that simple confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I would encourage you to do that even today, even right now. Father, thanks for Jesus. We, we pray and now we sing all these things to you because of him. Amen. At this point, we're going to take...